When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're live, mate. And today's guest, we've got Mr. Tommy Sheridan. I don't think you need much introduction, mate, as you're, you're well known. So, I just, first of all, I just want to say thanks for coming on the podcast. I really no appreciate problems. it. Um, like I say, we just, it's anything goes, we just roll with it, talk with it. And well, James, first of all, thanks for the invitation. Uh, it's a pleasure to come on. You're a Glasgow boy, um, working class, a young man doing something creative um, and I've always tried my best when I was in the parliament and in the council, whenever I get contacted with young people at college doing journalism courses or whatever, can we get an interview, we've got to interview a politician, blah, blah, blah. Of course you do, you do anything to try and help somebody for your class, mm -hmm. better themselves, better their lives. So from my point of view, um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here and it also gives us an opportunity. I know the whole thing isn't about this, but it does give us an opportunity to give a wee call out. First of all, to Obi, Obi for Apostle, Apostle um, <laughs> my, my, wee, my wee buddy. Um, I once spent uh, a few days with Obi at Her Majesty's pleasure. Um, I've got to say his scrabble stinks um, and uh, he still owes me a few Mars bars. But anyway, we'll, a typical we'll, 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 boy. We'll, we'll, get, we'll go into that, we'll go into that <laughs> some other thing. But the, the other call out is for the Indy family, for those who believe that Scotland is a country and that we as a nation should run our own affairs, should be responsible for our own decisions, should take our own fate in our hands. Uh, I'm giving a call out to them because a week on Saturday, 5th of May, we're going to be assembling at Kelvin Grove Park from 11 o'clock and we're going to march all the way through Glasgow to Glasgow Green. And we're calling on the SNP government to use the mandate that they have for Indyref 2. We, um, in 2014, we managed to convince in the teeth of all sorts of distortions and lies and bullshit, we managed to convince 45% of Scotland to go for independence. People were lied to, people were bullied, people were misled. I think this time around, we won't win 45, we'll win 55 or 60%. I think we have got a real opportunity, not of changing things overnight, because independence, James, independence will change nothing apart from the opportunity to change everything. 
Because as soon as we have the power over our economy, over our society, then we can start making Scotland a better place to live in. And that's why independence is dead important to me. So please, if you support independence, whether you were a yes or a no voter in 2014, come along on 5th of May, join us marching through the streets of Glasgow and let's go for Indy Ref 2. I love that, mate. I, I'm coming. I'm joining, mate. You've got me in. Bro, I, bro, I love that, mate. Uh, Your voice, mate, when you speak, you have got that presence. You're very powerful. You're on point. You know what you're talking about. Where did... Let's go back to the start where you grew up. Let's mm. go for it and talk about that. James, that's, uh, I was with her today, uh, my ma. Um, she's Hiya. she's coming up for eighty years of age. We've got a we party for her on the sixth of May. She turns eighty on the fifth, but she says she didn't want a party on the fifth because she wants to go to the demo. So <laughs> um, we're going to get a wee wheelchair because she's not very uh, mobile nowadays. But my mother, um, as I was growing up in Pollock, uh, James, very similarly, Postal Park, lived in a tenement building, um, used to um, hate, I don't, one wee story about the tenement buildings, which anybody that lives in a tenement building will be able to um, relate to this. But when I was a wee kid, uh, I, I screamed uh, the, the, the roof down and moaned to my ma and my dad because I wanted a chopper bike. And you're probably too young to remember how cool choppers were. But in my day, the chopper bike was a bee's knees, the big saddle, the big handlebars. That was the bike to have. And of course, I uh, moaned to my ma and dad and I said, look, I want one of these chopper bikes. Um, and eventually, my mum and dad didn't have much money. My dad worked in a factory doing Rolls Royce. My mum worked in pubs, missed their life. So we didn't have much money. But... They scrimped and they saved, they got loans for the Prudential and eventually they got me the chopper bike. James, the only problem is I lived the tap dancer. I was four stories up, right? Chopper bikes look brilliant, but they're the heaviest bikes <laughs> you can ever have. I hated that bike. I couldn't <laughs> carry it up and down. Ended up leaving it in the veranda uh, because I couldn't be bothered taking it down because after you try and bring it upstairs, you're knackered. However, that's it. A wee diversion to the bit about where does it all come from? It comes from being raised in Pollock, getting raised with parents who loved us very, very much. Uh, my mum and dad were fantastic parents. They weren't the, the best of couples, I've got to say. They probably a wee bit mismatched. They, they ended up divorcing when, uh, when I was 17. But they were fantastic parents. They gave us nothing but love and support. And as I was growing up, my mum who had worked in pubs and as a cleaner most of her life, she became involved in trying to organise bar staff in a trade union. She worked in the pubs and she saw how the lassies, and predominantly lassies, were exploited and they were working long hours and no getting paid overtime. They were getting wages and sometimes the boss would keep the tips and it was just terrible. So she joined a trade union and through that experience, she was encouraged to try and get others to join the trade union. And she managed, she was very good at it, she's a good communicator, she's a determined woman, she got loads and loads to join the union, and then eventually the union says to her, we want you to become an organiser. So she became an organiser for the Transport and General Workers Union, and in the 70s, uh, um, she uh, took out the first strike 
against Tenant Caledonian. Up until then, Tenant Caledonian refused to recognise trade unions. So they, they wouldn't negotiate with wage rates, they wouldn't recognise overtime pay, wouldn't give anybody a contract. So my mom got all the bar staff together, got them in the union, and they went on strike. And Tenant Caledonian laughed at them because they said, oh, you'll never win a strike. Because if people don't go to your pub, they'll go to somebody else's pub. You'll never win. You can't stop people drinking. What they didn't reckon with was the ingenuity of people like my ma who didn't picket the pubs. They picketed the breweries. They went to the breweries and they set up picket lines and the guys who drove the tankers that delivered the beer wouldn't cross the picket lines. So within two days of a strike, Tenant Caledonian caved, recognised the union, they got proper wages, they got taxis home, they got overtime, they won their, their strike. The reason I tell that story is that was my childhood. I, I was growing up yeah. where my mom did that type of Is that where your leadership uh, skill comes that, in? I, I mean, you don't realise it when you're young, obviously. I mean, I, I used to moan at my mom. She was always going to meetings. Oh, you're always going to meetings. My mom, my mom says when I was younger, I said I was when I grew up, I'm going to buy her a taxi because she was always waiting in a taxi, right? Um, but then she got involved in something, James, which uh, frightened me as a wee boy. Um, because my mum got involved in something in those days what, what was called the battered wife's movement. Now, this involved my mum being on the phone with, with women who were getting abused by their partners, going to their hussies to get them out of the hussies, helping them. And I was, as a wee boy, I used to greet when my mum was leaving the house because I thought my mum was going to get hurt. And I, I was really, really upset about it. But my mum felt that she had to do this because these women needed help. And what she worked on, uh, in conjunction with the union that she was now employed with, she realised that a lot of these women were trapped. They wanted to leave, but they'd nowhere to go. Um, and therefore, what they worked on was getting the Transport and General Workers Union and other unions supporting the building of refugees, refugees so that people could go somewhere. Up until then, there was no refuge. There was nowhere these women could go. So they, they built their first ever refuge and they started being able to give an out for people that were in that situation. Um, so my mother, she was a pioneer in that uh, uh, field, and that organisation, the Battered Wives Movement, went on to become known as Women's Aid, and that's what it's called now. Um, so that was going on uh, as I'm a kid growing up, um, and I used to get taught about the strikes that were going on. I remember as a wee, a wee boy, only eight years of age, in 1972, and I had uh, all my wee soldiers were all uh, laid out in the room. I had my wee Germans and my wee British soldiers, and, and all the wee plastic figures. And, and then the lights went out, and I couldn't play with them. And my mom comes in with a candle and all that. And I was really angry because I couldn't get playing with my soldiers. But here, my mom sat me down and she explained to me uh, these miners who used to go away down these tunnels and they dug for ages to get this coal and this coal was then brought up to the surface and it was the coal that was burnt to give you power and that's how you get electricity. She was explaining to us and she was saying they were getting exploited, they were straight for better wages. And I'm like, oh, as a wee kid, I, was, I just wanted to play with my soldiers. <laughs> but the point is, and the reason I tell this story is because it must have... Resonating in your brain, exactly. Aye. It must. You talked earlier about the brain, the importance of the brain. That wee story, the fact that I can remember it uh -huh. so clearly, shows that it must have had an effect on me. So that as I've grown up, 
going to school, um, eventually going to university, then as I've grown up, I've actually had that sense of right and wrong, uh, always trying to, I think, stick up for the underdog. Um, that's the way I, I think I was brought up, uh, and that's the way I hope to lead my life. Um, my, when I meet mates who I used to go to school with, they tell me that in the modern studies classes that I was always arguing with the teachers and all that. I can't really remember that, but they tell me that I, I was dead argumentative and all that. So um, that, that's that's how it happened, um, uh, James. And then when it got to 16, I wanted to leave school. I actually wanted to be a motor mechanic. That was my first job that I wanted to be because my uncle used to fix motors and I thought, oh, I want to do that. But my teacher says I was useless at techie, so I should forget becoming a, mm -hmm. a motor mechanic and I should stick in at school. I should do my O-levels, done my O-levels, and then I left and got a job uh, working for uh, Buttons in Paisley, um, selling uh, men's clothes. Uh, you wouldn't think it to look at what I wear, but there, there you go. Um, my fashion's no change since the days. I'm, I'm hoping someday this will come back into fashion. But anyway, uh, once I got my hire in my old levels, uh, the, the, I was encouraged, go back and do your hires, go back. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go back to school because all my mates were leaving. You know, I didn't want to go back to school. But I was convinced by my mum. She says, look, you want to change the system. You need to learn about the system. So go back to school and get your hires. So I went back and did my hires, end up getting uh, four hires. And again, I, I left school, got a job with Pickford's Removals on uh, Duke Street there. Loved that, absolutely. But it was hard work, but it was good work. Uh, but I got enough um, um, qualifications and I got accepted to Glasgow, Strathclyde and Stirling Universities. Uh, and I had to choose uh, what one to go to. And my, again, my mother, she advised me, look, son, uh, you're 17 years of age. If you want to grow up, maybe you should go to Stirling and you're going to have to live yourself and mm -hmm. learn about life and all that. So that's what happened. I went off to Stirling Uni at 17. I did a degree in economics and politics. Uh, and that was an eye-opener for me, James, because up to then I hadn't really read much. I, you know, reading just, I mean, I just, all I wanted to do was play football and chase a woman, mm -hmm. me and my mates. That's what Pollock was like. Pollock was a brilliant place to get brought up in. I know... You know, at the time, you don't know that everybody's in poverty, right? Because we're all in the same boat. But we had loads of freedom. We had a big uh, park near his Bonnie Home Park. I stayed in Linthaw Road in Pollock. Uh, we had loads of open spaces. And it was just, Pollock to me was brilliant. We just had fun. We just had fun all the time. We're always out playing football and, and doing up to no good, building rafts and all that stuff and going down the river car. But I loved it. But... Um, I suppose I'd never really thought about what I wanted today other than play football at Mace, working class boys. My dad, because it's important I don't miss out my dad here, because my dad was a big influence in my life as well, James. Uh, he, his politics was a small p, because my old man ran the local football team. When I, when I was only about eight years of age, I was playing football in the street and the next door, uh, the next close guy called Mr Little, uh, said to his son, you, you're quite good at football, why don't you join Pollock United? And I thought, oh, I've never thought of that. I was only eight and they had an under 10 team. So when I was nine, I went and uh, I went, went and started playing with Pollock United. Up until then, my old man and my uncle used to take us to all the Celtic games. Uh, I was a, um, a regular, every game, home and away. We went with the St Brendan's uh, supporters bus for Linwood. 
Uh, we got picked up at the Argosy pub in Paisley Road West. It was uh, great memories again, waiting in the bus for the, the flask, the scarf, everything. Uh, seen seven in a row at Methyl, uh, Dixie Dean's hat trick, uh, Scottish Cup final, um, 6 1 game. Uh, loved on it. They did brilliant memories. But then when I started playing football, uh, my dad started coming to watch us playing football. And uh, the Mr. Little and the other guy said, look, Mr. Sheridan, we're really struggling for volunteers. Um, is there any chance you could help us out? And that was it. My dad volunteered, helped run the team, and then years later become the president of the club. There was nine age groups. It was Pollock United for boys and Pollock was massive. It's just like like Glasgow United, Possel YM. Mm-hmm. You know, these they, they, Easter Craigs, these clubs were absolutely central to the lives of a lot of working class boys, James. Um, with without those clubs, many of us might have ended Data up getting NHL. involved in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Um, you know, I get brought up with a lot of glue sniffing was going on. Um, I lost a, a, a pal, Tam McGunty, glue sniffing. Unfortunately, um, so a lot of the, there was a a lot of problems. Um, also, the alcohol, obviously, carrying knives, running with gangs. It, it was all there, but Paul United gave us an outlet. It gave us something to look forward to. We trained twice a week. We played on a Saturday. We played on a Sunday. We had discos on a Friday night. It was fantastic. Um, and my old man was central to that. Um, so although I've mentioned my mom a lot in yeah. terms of her influence on me, my dad was also a big influence on me. I mean, what one thing that, in terms of this whole idea of um, tolerance, equality, and being kind to people, my old man, because he was a big Celtic man, uh, my old man used to have a big tattoo in his forearm of a crucifix. Um, a lot of young Celtic supporters, Catholics, that's the way we go going day. And the thing my dad did, which always uh, struck with me and, and, and I think encouraged me to be tolerant of, of, of other people, my dad, once he started taking Paul United, went back up to Eddie's tattoo artist up the tune where he, in the Tromgate where he got his first tattoo done and he got the crucifix covered by a big eagle because he didn't want any of the other boys feeling a bit isolated or out of place because we had all religions there and no religions there so it was a club that was there for everybody and and that was a dead important part of my life as well so all of that built up to me going to 17 going to university and uh, for the first time James I really started reading uh, books and learning about Karl Marx, who I'd heard my mom talking about, but I didn't know who it was, you know. I thought it was uh, one of the comedians, the Marx Brothers, but it, <laughs> it turns out he was the best philosopher in the world and, and, and opened the key to explaining the system and, and politics. And then I learned about guys like John McLean, who was born no far from here in Pollock Shaw's. He was a, a Marxist, a revolutionary for Glasgow. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've never heard of this guy. This guy's been in prison five times in his life. This guy fought against the First World War, fought for the against the, the increasing of the rents during the war, fought he organised the workers, and I've never heard of him in his Pollock shows. And once I learned about these guys, I think to myself, we need to get involved in politics, we need to change things. So really that sort of a experience in those four years at uni uh, were then added to in, in 84 when the minor strike happened. Um, again, you, you're a I was bit, born bit young to remember, but in 1984, um, the minor strike started March of 1984, and that started an absolutely 
massive battle, James. I mean, it was described uh, afterwards, because it went on for 12 months, and it was described afterwards as a civil war without bullets. And that's what the minor strike was. It was the class of the ruling class coming together, the media, the police, the social security system. They'd done everything under Thatcher to try and crush the miners. And the miners, you know, they were isolated. They appealed to the wider movement to support them and people responded. People responded with collections. People responded with demonstrations. And they miners, although Thatcher tried to starve them back to work, they miners never in that 12 months did without support, food, money, resources. It was there. Um, the working class came together and we fought these bastards. <laughs> and the truth is we nearly won. If you look at the uh, Thatcher's uh, um, biography and Ian McGregor, who was the National Coal Board Chairman at the time, biography, he, they'll tell you that we were a whisker away for beating them. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, um, they won the day. And much of what happened throughout the 1980s, cuts in Social Security, cutbacks in the health service, all of that is because they won. Was that your incentive to try and create the change and try and help people? What was your what's your end goal? What's your biggest goal you would like to achieve? What was what in your mindset is what you think needs to make the Britain a better place, Scotland a better place? James, it's a good question, but I, 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 if I'm perfectly honest with you, at the time as a 17, 18, 19 year old boy, um, I didn't really have long term goals. I, I tended to do what I thought needed done. Here and now, um, the the miners needed support, so I organised support. One of one of the finest elections that I've ever won. I've fought a few elections in my time. I've won some and I've lost a lot more, unfortunately. But there you go. But one of the um, proudest moments was at university in 1984, and I was elected the miners' picket bus organiser picket bus organiser and what happened is we used to get up about half five in the morning and we would get to the Stirling Miners Welfare for six in the morning to go to the picket lines for, for in support of the miners and at first the miners were like looking at us you know who are these numpties you know <laughs> uh, you know they're mostly coming for Falin and for Stirling for Paul Mays they're like oh, who are they think they are and all that they, they were suspicious of us but then after a few weeks they realised that we were just working class boys yeah. just like them um, and lo and behold, after 10 days of us getting up in the morning to get the bus to get to the miners' welfare, the miners' welfare took the decision to send the bus from there to the university pickers up in the morning. And that was something I was dead proud of because it was like them recognising you're on our side and we're going to support you. So I don't really think I had at that time, James, a rounded out idea of I'm going to change the world. I knew the world needed change. I hated one of the big things at that time, apart from the miners, was, was apartheid in South Africa. And I, I used to see the stories in the news of what was happening in Soweto and how the young blacks were being shot down by the South African Defence Force. And, and these young South Africans were being condemned by the likes of Thatcher. She was calling Nelson Mandela a terrorist because they were organising defence of the townships. And I, I was thinking to myself, you know, think about this for a moment. You know, Pollock's invaded. 
Easter House is invaded. Puzzle Park's invaded. You're invaded by people that are bullying you, that are slapping about your family, that are killing your cousins and your brothers and your sisters. What would you do? Hey, what would you do? Surely many of us would say, to hell with us, we're getting organised. And if it meant getting yourself armed, then you would have to do it, right? Sometimes people don't want to take the arms, but they have to. And that's what was happening in South Africa throughout the 1980s, and that was a big influence in my life as well. So I was very much thinking, act local, think global. Because, you know, South Africa wasn't on my doorstep, but the minor strike was on my doorstep. Uh, unemployment was on my, my doorstep throughout the 80s. Thatcher destroyed industry after industry. Uh, and I think I just think we had to fight for change. The power of the people, mate, people don't realise how strong they are and the masses can be. People are controlled by television, by the press, and, it, and it, it's thrilled fear that people at Thatcher and causing wars with Mandela or whatever in the past. It even happens now. What happens is we'll say there's terrorists everywhere. I think there's only been like 49 murders with terrorists in the UK in the last seven years, but there's been 100 murders in London alone last year. The real terrorists are happening by our own fucking people, but people don't realise the voice of the people can be as powerful and the revolution can start if people get together and come up with a solution. Everybody's all over the place. They're too caught up in their own world and they're just living in fear. Somebody but, needs to create the strength and create that spark that people, we can make the world a better place, not just Scotland, UK, but worldwide. People just, if we can awaken the masses, then changes can happen. I said it last night when we had our festival. If you want change, instead of blaming politics, instead of blaming councils, fuck everybody else. If you want to create the change, become the change. Be the change yourself. And what happens is if you keep your light shining bright, it guides everybody else through the darkness. I just think you've got a voice and you've always had a voice. Even listening to new talks, you're, you're passionate. I want to, whatever you want to do right now, I just want to fucking join you. I want to do it. But, but the thing, although what you're saying is things that I would endorse, James, right, about the idea of change from within. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't want things to change, there's no change. Yes. Right? You must first want change. Definitely. Where I think there is sometimes a problem is that not everybody possesses your confidence. You, you, you're an articulate guy. You may not always been a, a, been an articulate guy, but you're certainly articulate now. You've got a great degree of confidence. Uh, not everybody's got that because... These bastards in, in power, they try and crush people's hopes. They try and crush their aspirations. They try and make them feel that they don't deserve a better life, that they're not good enough. I mean, yeah. part and parcel of the independence campaign in 2014 was Scotland wasn't big enough. Scotland wasn't smart enough. Scotland wasn't clever enough to stand on its own two feet. What a lot of baloney. What a lot of pish. <laughs> of course we're big enough. Of course we're strong enough. Of course we're smart enough. But we didn't have that desire and that enthusiasm and that optimism that we could actually make things better. So a lot of people thought, oh, I'm going to go for the safe bet. I'm not going to go for change. I'll go for things as they are. Well, the way they are, the now, isn't good enough as far as I'm Definitely. concerned. But that's the fear. Change, yeah. of course it is. That, I mean, if you think about this, the unionists who fought that um, campaign, they called their campaign Project Fear. Project Fear. What they knew was if they could frighten people about what's round the corner, they'll stop people going round the corner. What we've got to say is darkness is here and now. Light and hope 
is round the corner. Join us and let's go round the corner together. That's what we've got to do. So that's how we can try and awaken the masses to realise that Scotland is a powerful country. It's one of the powerful countries in the world, but they're controlled with fear. They don't think they're good enough. Some of the greatest people who's had inventions are, are Scottish. Do you know what I mean? The power's here, it's just... Whether it's penicillin, whether it's the steam engine, whether it's the telephone, whether it's the telephone, all of those facts show that Scotland has always been a generator of intelligence, of good ideas. We're no better, don't get me wrong, James, I'm not a chauvinistic uh, nationalist who thinks we're better than anybody else, independence, because we're better than another country. We're no better than any other country, but we're no worse than any other country. And what I envy about all of these other countries in the world is they take their own decisions. Mm -hmm. Now, once we're independent, we might take some bad decisions, uh -huh. but you know what? They'll be our decisions. Mm -hmm. That's the important mm -hmm. thing. Instead of being told by England all the time what today we'll be able to do, what we want to do, what people vote for. And at the end of the day, we have to keep emphasising we're no anti-English. I've got loads of English pals. We're no anti-English. That's it, name's English. That's it, that's it, name's English. Well, there you go. Can he be anti-English or he be anti-James? <laughs> we are anti-Westminster. And there's a world of difference between being anti-Westminster and anti-English. The truth is, the working class of England, I think, would be over the moon if we took our independent path. Mm -hmm. Because they know that we're going to build a better country, a country that puts people before profit. I, I was reading a wee story the other day, James. just pisses me off so much. You read a wee story that just affects you, and it was about something that I'm not even any good at, music, right? Now, in this country, we only have 10 local authorities, 10 councils out of 32 that give free music lessons. It used to be every single council gave free music lessons. Now, loads of working-class kids, they don't have mums and dads that can afford to send them to piano lessons, guitar lessons, violin lessons. So the only way they get opened up to the world of music is through school. They get free tuition. And then something drops in their mind and they're, oh, I'm good at that. And they pursue that. But now what you've got because of the cutbacks or the local authorities, they've got less and less money to spend so they think, oh, well, we need to cut back in the music lessons. So loads and loads, hundreds of thousands of wains in Scotland aren't they getting free music lessons any longer. But we've got Trident doing in the Clyde there that's going to cost £205 billion to renew. And they're voting to renew that. So we can afford nuclear weapons that are no good to man their beast, but we can't afford free music lessons. That's what pisses me off, James. This this poor decision-making, this priority that we can't afford to teach our wains how to play instruments, but we can afford weapons of mass destruction. Do you think, though, there will be change? James, I, I, if I didn't think it was, was gonna, wasn't going to be change, I, I, I wouldn't go to my bed in the morning, mate. I mean, I, as a socialist, you're an optimist. You've got to have optimism in the future. You've got to have optimism in your own class and the ability of your class to realise eventually the need for change. I think many people share you and I's frustration at all the things that are wrong in society, but what a lot of people don't see, I think, is a way to change it. Um, and you're right, 
you have to want change. But then once you want change, you've got to say to yourself, well, how are you going to achieve it? Um, for me, um, the reason I've mentioned the independence route several times is because independence for me is not a destination. It's only the beginning of the journey. Mm -hmm. Once we get independence, we've got loads of work to do, but we've got the tools to do it. That's the, That's the point. Step. That's the first step. The first step. Do you think that because you are a voice, they want everybody to shut the fuck up, don't say it, don't go against us? Do you think you have caused uproar through the years? That's why they've tried to imprisonate you and, and shut you up and do all the shit that they've done? Well, there's no doubt that uh, we've we done a good job during the anti-poll tax campaign. I mean, you talked earlier at the start about having vision, about what you wanted to achieve and everything else. I wanted to fight the battles that needed to be fought. And, and if I could play a role in that, then I played a role. And one of those battles was, of course, the community charge, as the Thatcher government called it. It was supposed to be her flagship of legislation. She was going to introduce this new piece of legislation, do away with the rates and charge everybody per heat in a house. So whereas before you lived in an average tenement building, there's uh, you and maybe two or three wains. Uh, if you're over 18, you've got one rates bill. But now, when the Tories come in, you're going to have five poll tax bills because everybody over 18 is going to have to pay. So the average bill was gone for about two or three hundred quid a year to something like two thousand quid a year. And this was the, the thing that was so bad about it. The rate was a, a, across the board. The rate was the same for everybody. So it didn't matter if you lived in a castle or you lived in a tenement. You were paying the same poll tax. So the, the duke with all his millions was paying the same as the dustman living in a council house. And that was totally and utterly wrong. And people like myself and hundreds of people like me, we got organised. We, we, we got organised in Pollock. And then we got organised in government, we got organised in Possel, we got organised in Easterhouse. We built a Glasgow-wide federation, then we built a Scottish-wide federation, then we built a British-wide federation of anti-poll tax unions. All of us committed to mass non-payment. Now, the point about that is, James, it was illegal. No, the fact your poll tax was aye, illegal. Aye. Um, so we had to go and explain to people, people who didn't want to break the law, we had to explain to them, listen, Sometimes, when the law is rotten to the core, sometimes the only way to change it is to break it. Mm -hmm. Civil disobedience has got a rich tradition in society. In Scottish, English society, whether it's the tall puddle martyrs, whether it's the suffragettes, all of them had to take part in civil disobedience where they broke the laws that told them they couldn't organise. They broke the laws that told them they couldn't go to certain places. We broke the law by saying, stuff your poll tax, we're no paying it. People were frightened. You talked earlier right. about fear. People were frightened because they had the bogeyman, and the bogeyman was the sheriff officers. And that, for a lot of your um, viewers and listeners, the sheriff officers might not mean much to them. But in those days, sheriff officers were those that were given a warrant to go to the house if you didn't pay the poll tax, and they could price your furniture, price your telly, price your settee, price your coffee table. And if you didn't pay the bill within a couple of weeks, they come back to the house and they take it out of the house uh -huh. and they go and sell it at a public auction. Did you get evicted? How was the homeless figures back then? The, Did they rise? The, the, the homeless figures wouldn't have particularly uh, risen at that time because of the poll tax because you never got evicted. Um, they, they sold your furniture 
Um, the, the homelessness figures had, had shot up throughout the mid-1980s because of unemployment, James. People getting thrown out of the shipyards, people getting thrown out of factories, people people's whole lives were shattered. But what happened with this uh, threat of the sheriff officers? People, we were going to meetings, hundreds, hundreds, every, everywhere you go, hundreds at the meetings. And people were saying, aye, you're saying don't pay it, but what if the sheriff officers come, right? And we said, if the sheriff officers come, We'll beat your door. We'll beat your door. We, 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 we called ourselves the poll tax busters. Right? We, we based it on the, the Ghostbusters. Remember the film? And we said that we were going to build the anti-poll tax mm-hmm. army. Mm-hmm. An army made up of volunteers. How many people? Listen, this is the point, James. At the start, I can remember people saying, because remember, it's Thatcher we're fighting. Mm-hmm. And this is around about 1988, 89. Thatcher won in 85 against the miners. She had beaten the, the steel workers, she'd beaten the miners, she'd beaten Galtieri in Argentina. A lot of people were saying, oh, Tommy, wait a wee minute, she's the Iron Lady. She was known as the Iron Lady. You'll never beat her, you'll never beat her. And we said, well, look, we don't know until we fight. We try. Nobody's ever won a fight without fighting. Aye. You know, the sure way of losing a fight is walking away from it, mm-hmm. right? I think... We had to convince people of confidence in themselves, confidence in their own class. And what happened um, several times, in fact, Possel was, was very much involved, as was... They don't Saint, give a fuck. They used as, to have it sprayed on all the walls, well, paying all poll tax. Well, I, as was Sight Hall, I was arrested in Possel, I was arrested <laughs> in Sight Hall, I, I was arrested probably Same. four or five other <laughs> I for different things. <laughs> I was arrested for asking people to gather outside the hussies yeah. of people that had threatened pendants. And the beauty of this for me, James, people didn't know who it was. Mm-hmm. You know, you got a, we used to have what we called phone trees. They had mobile phones in their days, they had social media in their days. All we had was the old traditional dial of the phone. And we used to have phone trees. And what would happen is you'd give somebody 10 names and they would then have 10 names and 10 names and 10 names. So you phone one, they phone 10, they phone 10, they phone 10. And what happened is we managed to mobilise hundreds of people. Whenever the sheriff officers were coming, we mobilised hundreds of people. And all we would do is stand outside, link our arms at the close mouth and say, you're not getting in. <laughs> you're not getting in. No sheriff's here. Mm-hmm. And of course, the police would then get called. And they would oh, you need to move. You know, they're doing their lawful duty. And we said, look, you need to arrest us. We're not moving. And the police laughed. Would want to arrest you because first of all, it's a lot of paperwork, uh-huh. and secondly, a lot of them didn't like the poll tax aye, either. Aye, aye. Um, so, from the point of view of what we did throughout those months and years, James, we actually gave people confidence that we oh. could beat something, you can fight back. Uh, that, uh, and one day, uh, around about the uh, possible and Seattle area, it was estimated that something of the order of a thousand people were involved in stopping the sheriff officers getting into hussies running about that area. They targeted that area and we mobilised and we stopped. How many times did you get to jail through that? Uh, I got arrested probably about six, seven times. And then what happened, um, I don't want to bore you with this one detail, but what happened was um, 19, um, 1991, a wee, a wee lassie for phoned up the anti-poll tax office um, and I spoke to her, and she was in tears. She was really distraught. She was a lone parent, and she hadn't paid her poll tax. Couldn't afford to pay. It wasn't a choice for a lot of people, by the way. That, let, let me be clear about this. The biggest recruiting sergeant of the anti-poll tax army 
wasn't me or anybody else. It was poverty. People couldn't pay. Mm-hmm. What we did is we gave them some confidence. We gave them some dignity to be part of a campaign. Don't suffer on your own. Join the Giller. And this uh, lassie phoned up uh, in tears. She'd come back to the shops and her lock and her door had been changed and a letter had been put in the uh, letterbox and she read the letter and it was for Abernethy McIntyre, sheriff officers in Greenock and they told her they had been in her house when she wasn't there. They'd taken away a coffee table, a display cabinet and a telly and they were going to sell it at a warrant sale for a poll tax. The last was just destroyed. She was, she was embarrassed, James, because... In the olden days, warrant sales were a form of embarrassment because you're, what used to happen is your, your your furniture was put in the street and everybody would see that you were in debt and yeah. that you were poor. Your price then. It was always, always a way of humiliating you. That's what it was all about, humiliation. Um, so this lassie says that they're, they're going to carry a warrant sale 1st of October 1991. So we, this was only five days to go. So we got mobilised, we got leaflets printed, we went to the, all the colleges, we went round the, the, the schemes. It was supposed to take place up in Turnbull Street. It used to be an old police station, it became a courtyard. And uh, the warrant sale was to take place in Turnbull Street. It was supposed to take place at 11 o'clock, uh, but we got there for 7 in the morning. And we mobilised as many as we could. But here the day before it, I get uh, a wee envelope put through the door in Pollock. Um, and I went to the door and saw a motor down in the street, scarper away, big Peugeot 405, a red one, uh, two sheriff officers I, I, I learned uh, were in it, and they had delivered an interdict to my house. And this interdict told me that I wasn't allowed to go to Turnbull Street, uh, and uh, I'd been interdicted against interfering with this warrant sale. So I told Tom, I said, bugger that, I'm going to be there. And I took the interdict with me and we mobilised anything between five, six hundred bodies turned up that morning. <laughs> Incredibly, we went up to this big gate, it led to the yard and we pushed it and it was all, oh yeah, beauty. We went into the yard and here there's a blue transit van sitting there, two sheriff officers sitting in this transit van, the lassie's furniture's in the back of the van. What they had intended to do was they had intended to open the van at 11 o'clock and have a warrant sale. We had other ideas. We surrounded the van and we said to them, we never threatened them or anything, we just said, no warrant sale's taking place here. You're not opening these doors. Paul has come, there's a bit of a scuffle, there's wee bits of fists thrown and all that. Turns out with some Asian provocateurs for the police were involved actually, but that's another story. Um, police eventually, eventually the police say, we can't guarantee safety here. The warrant sale's off. You'll need to cancel it. So the guy has to go in a loud tailor. Today's warrant sale has been cancelled. Yes! We saved the day. The lassie got her furniture back. Uh, I didn't give a wee speech. Thank everybody for being there. And I say, this interdict was supposed to stop us from being here. Rip it up, throw it in the air. I said, we're not going to be stopped, you know. Everybody thought it was quite good and all that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A week later, <laughs> I got, a week later, I got a letter from the court. Uh, I was to be charged with contempt of court, and uh, I, took, I went and seen my lawyer. And boy, Alan Miller had been helping us out with all the other arrests. I says, Alan, what's all this about? I met him in a Centurion Cafe in uh, the Glasgow Cross. 
uh, we rolling sausage and uh, Alan said, oh, don't worry, Tommy. Said, oh, these interdicts, eh? people break them every day. Don't worry about it. There's no, nothing to worry about. I'll not go any further. <laughs> Seven days later, high court. Then we were contempt of court and incitement to riot. <laughs> Alan says, look, the bad news is you're looking at at least a year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd have fucking you know, sacked him whoa. straight away. I, I says, Alan, what are you doing, mate? He says, look, uh, they're obviously out to silence you. They're out to use you as an example. Because we'd done so well in fighting the poll tax, gathering people into civil disobedience, they obviously had to then try and make an example. Mm -hmm. And I was the example. Uh, in other words, if you don't toe the line, look what's going to happen to you, you're going to be sent to jail. Went through to Edinburgh in March of 92 uh, for the big trial. Um, I was getting done with incitement to riot and contempt of court. Mm -hmm. And then Alan, eagle-eyed, eagle-eyed Alan, during the evidence session in the court, they play a video, a polis video, of what happened in the courtyard and the bit of scuffling and the fighting. And bold Alan recognises from that video one of the police officers that had given evidence earlier in the court case. And he says to the prosecutor, hey, we need to have a meeting uh, out with the court. Has a meeting, says, we want this man recalled to give evidence again. He's in the video, wearing denims, wearing a t-shirt and throwing some punches. Fighting. And that's <laughs> what had happened was he was an Asian provocateur. He'd been sent in there. To cause a fight. To cause You're the joking. fight. You're joking. James, that happens Fucking all hell. the time. So they've sent police the to fight with you. All the time. So you can go to court and then do they write in the papers and use that you're a bad people, lose a, followers? A, they start the violence, then it gives them an excuse to intervene. Because they didn't need an excuse to intervene. As soon as there's violence, they intervene. But of course, we then get labelled as troublemakers, violent people, blah, blah, blah. So Alan said to them, we want him recalled. And they say, uh, oh, well, we're going to drop the incitement to riot charge. Mm. So that was dropped so that he couldn't get recalled. But I end up getting done with incitement, uh, sorry, getting done with contempt of court. And I was sent to jail for six months, uh, doing it at uh, Salton uh, Jail. For, Edinburgh. For, for wrapping up a wee bit of paper, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was the most expensive wee bit of paper I've ever wrapped up my life. It's six months in jail. Uh, anyway, that was in March of 1992. And there is, I think, a good ending to this particular story, James, because when I was in jail, um, it was decided May of 92, I was still in jail, but it was decided that I should stand for election to the council, because the council elections were taking place. Um, so me and a group of others, we were in a, a group at the time called Scottish Militant Labour. Um, and uh, we said, let's stand for election. You know, it was the easiest election I've ever fought, because I couldn't, I couldn't go out to deliver leaflets. Yeah. I was in a jail. Uh, <laughs> brilliant. Uh, everybody else was doing a hard work. <laughs> but uh, it was fantastic, because it's the first time in their lifetimes that there was a press conference ever called by a prisoner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because mm -hmm. because I was a civil prisoner, I'd been done with a civil crime, because um, contempt of court was a civil crime, then they had to give me, under the Representation of the People's Act, they had to give me the right to have a press conference. In the jail? So I called a press conference in the jail. 
So I meant what a journalist were all called to the, the main rec room and all that, and I got led out by the, the, the officers with the, the garb on and all that, the prison denims and the prison shirt, and I had to sit there and give my pitch for the election. And what happened, James, and this is the important point, is I won. I actually won election to the council. I was elected for the Pollock Ward uh, FEMA, FEMA prison to win it. I'm very, very proud of that because the people of Pollock they remembered what I'd done. They recognised. They, re they voted for me and then all over Glasgow with the guy elected in Easterhouse and Shettleston and Nitzhill, all over Glasgow we get six councillors elected. People voted for the Scottish military Labour people because we were the people that had fought the poll tax. Um, and the interesting thing about that is when I got led away to jail in uh, March of uh, uh, 1991, um, sorry, 1992, when I got led away to jail, um, I remember one of the prisoners, uh, past man in the, in the corridor, um, he shouted the next day, Tommy Sheridan, Tommy Sheridan. And I, I said, I'm in here, I'm in here. And he shoves a daily record under the under the prison door. You've made the front page, he says. <laughs> You've made your pr front page. And here, front page, me, handcuffs, thumbs up, mm -hmm. and the big headline was, Downfall of the Dodge. <laughs> Downfall of the Dodger. Now, the reason I braised that is they thought they'd broke us. Mm -hmm. This was me going to jail, downfall of the Dodger, you're broken. And what happened months later is I left jail, no as Tommy Sheridan, but as Councillor Tommy Sheridan. Mm -hmm. So they never broke us at all. They actually tried to break us, mm -hmm. but it backfired. So you got more support for that? Of course we did. But this is many sentences you actually done. You've done a few, haven't done you? A few, I've done a few. Um, I, I get done um, doing it fast lane a few times. Um, from my point of view, nuclear weapons, James, right. is that, I just despise them. I, I, when you're involved in a conflict, then you're supposed to abide by certain rules of engagement. And one of those rules of engagement is if you and me are fighting, then we fight each other. Uh -huh. right? You don't, I don't swing a punch at your mate when he's not involved in the fight. And it's a bit like war. When you're fighting with another country, you're supposed to aim your armaments against the troops, not against the civilians. Uh -huh. Nuclear weapons are illegal because of that. Because nuclear weapons don't just kill the troops, they kill everybody. everybody. So that makes them illegal weapons. They're immoral, they're illegal, and in my opinion, we simply can't afford to have these weapons. We don't need to. So I, I've been involved, as, as many thousands of others have been doing it fast lane regularly. I've been arrested about five, six times doing there. Um, most of the time, I find my own corner and I ended up getting not guilty, not guilty, not because the, the day you be breaching the peace. And I, I went to court and I says, Where's the breach of the peace? Oh, I'm doing sitting in the road. Where's the breach it's of the peace? It's funny how you're getting done for breaching the peace, but there's nuclear weapons exactly, that can destroy the world. Exactly. But see the, the way really. things are going, there's going to be a World War Three. No. So there is, and people don't realise the United Kingdom have invaded more countries than any other country, and it's scary. And the way things are going with Russia, now I was talking to a guy last night. Actually, says Russia, they're thriving in their society. They're doing massive things. Putin's loved over there. Eighty-five percent of them actually love him. Well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that, wouldn't you? Know, in the media, aye. because what they do is they pr promote hate of this so guy. They want everybody aye. to be frightened of Russia. They want everybody to be angry about Russia. I mean, this old scurple stuff. 
uh, done in souls we come on what a lot of shite what a lot of shite why would they want to poison these two people who have got absolutely nothing to give no uh-huh. threat to that country mm-hmm. he's just about to host a world mm-hmm. bloody cup but what he's going to do is send guys out to poison two people in Salisbury. <laughs> come on! If you're, if you're swallowing that, you still believe in uh-huh. Father Christmas. Come on! <laughs> so f- from, from my point of view, what, what I've done in the past with nuclear weapons and many others have, is we've been down there and we've civilly disobeyed. We've refused to leave mm-hmm. the, the gates. We've, we've sat in front. We've tried to block the gates. We have tried to enforce international law. Mm-hmm. We've been arrested loads of times. Um, most of the times when I go to court, uh, we win the sheriff's lot. Well, I, I don't see any breach of the beast, but a couple of times I've been found guilty and I've refused to pay the fine. Because if I pay the fine, you're going against everything you've I for. think I'm admitting something. Aye. And I'm, I'm admitting there's been a crime. So I, I, I've been in jail a couple of times for no paying fines related to nuclear weapons. I've done a week in Greenock, I've done a week in uh, Berlin um, uh, for that. Then later on in life, I, I, I was done more recently in 2010 for a big perjury uh, case, James, which um, is still ongoing just now. I'm still fighting my case to clear my name with that. Um, but that was a, a massive uh, battle as well. Uh, the, the news of the world decided that they were going to target me um, and they, they printed a lot of pish about us. Uh, I was going to have a four-year affair with a, a woman that I'd never met. Um, they were going into all the details about this affair that I, with a woman I'd never met. And of course, we end up going to court. Didn't want to go to court, but sometimes you have to. Um, when you're getting bullied by somebody, sometimes you have to stand up to the bully. And courts know the place for working class people. Well, let's face it, the courts are for the rich. <laughs> That's where they are. But sometimes you have to fight. So I went to court. I fought it. Uh, I won it. Uh, they appealed it. Um, we, they then tried to concoct other uh, situations against me. They were subsequently is found guilty. Is this the papers? This is the papers. They were, they were subsequently found guilty of phone hacking. They were subsequently found uh, guilty of committing contempt to court. They removed a witness uh, during my case. I'm just, I'm not going give you all the details. What were they right? trying to get you from? Oh, they, basically, they were saying that uh, I had lied during my court case that I did know this individual and I had done the things what that they said. The, the orgies and the, the orgies. I mean, some of it sounded very good. I've got to I'm say not going to lie, more than regretting life, mate, is no knowing you sooner. <laughs> I mean, as I've said before, I, wrote, I was involved in writing a book way back um, in 94, uh, A Time to Rage, a very good book if anybody wants to get a hold of it, about the poll tax struggle. A lot of the stories that I've talked about here are in there. And as a youngster, listen, I was like any other young boy, you know, mm-hmm. chasing women all over the place I'm, I'm still women. doing it <laughs> I'm, I'm saying chasing women there but obviously at her age um, if, if somebody was a wee bit older it was a it was a, a fella in your bore human beings man human beings and uh, I was um, probably uh, he, probably the type of guy you would say was a, a sleazebag and that he didn't want to settle down with anybody he wanted to have as many girlfriends as possible aye, aye. that's the way I was and I think that's probably come back to haunt me because the papers have homed in on that mm-hmm. and then they've tried to exploit that. Right. I mean, they've dug up all sorts of uh, lassies who had relationships with, you know, the day years days, ago. The day, day stories them, about you. Oh, paying them big bucks. But at the end of the papers, they'd pay big bucks, 50 to 100 grand stories and they listen, paid a lot. Listen, um, one lassie got 30,000 and all lassie got 30,000. One guy got 200,000. Mm-hmm. A lot of stories, a lot. I mean, they're powerful, these mm-hmm. people. Um, however, we're fighting a, a, against it. I won my, my, my court case. 
It's now been shown the lassie who arranged, who was involved in these stories has now put her hands up and says it was all a pile of You're joking. No, oh, no. They're like, they're so, but that pain and torture for you to drag your name through the dirt, it must have been hard for you and your missus as well. Well, my missus in particular. I mean, I, the lassie who they, they picked on, I think had mental health problems. I think she was vulnerable. She was an ex-prostitute. And um, once they roped her in, they then threatened if she doesn't continue to cooperate with them, they're going to expose her past. Right? Blackmail. So they blackmail. That, that's what these people do. They blackmail you. That's why they, 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 they hack the phones. What they do is they'll pick people's friends, mm -hmm. they get their phone details, and then they illegally intercept the voicemail and they find out stories about you. Then they go to you and say, by the way, see if you don't uh, help me, we're going to show this and mm -hmm. that. So you're like, oh, oh, you abandoned yeah, yeah, yeah. you. That's the, that's the modus operandi. Was this the news that's of the world? The news of the world, the scumbags. I mean, they, they, they thought they would break me, but they've folded. So mm -hmm. uh, I was in jail while they folded. So I might have been doing jail time, but I've lasted longer than them yeah. as far as I'm concerned. But you, what did you do for three years? I got sentenced to three years, done a year uh, inside and six months on the tag. Um, I was in the barrel uh, and then I went to spent a, a Castle Douglas um, and, uh, you know, very hard times. How did that affect you, Tommy? Did it break you at any point or did it give you the fuel to go, do you know what, fuck this man, I've came too far now? James, I've got to say, first and foremost, jail's rotten, right? Jail's not, please, anybody, try and stay out of jail, it's horrible, Aye. right? I, I, I don't want to I agree with that. any way undermine the rottenness and the loneliness of jail. It eats your soul. However, you and I have been brought up in schemes. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's jail is like a big scheme. It's accepted. It's, it's a big jail to me is like a big housing scheme. Mm -hmm. Most of the guys in there are economic conscripts. Most mm -hmm. of them have been in doing a wee bit of this and that mm -hmm. to, to survive. Know, survive, right? Get a wee bit for extra for the family, whatever. Uh, most of them decent. Most of them you end up having a good relationship and a good laugh. There are some bams, of course, of course there are bams, bams, but there everywhere. are bams everywhere, everywhere right? Aye. But we know that. So. You brought up in a scheme, you know who the bums are, yeah. <laughs> you know to yeah, avoid yeah, yeah. them, right? And it's the same as jail. I think when you get brought uh, up in a scheme, you go to jail, you learn to survive. Uh, being able to play football was quite helpful because, you know, everybody, you can play football, you can do something, you can uh, go out in, in, in the recce and, and, and have a, a wee game and if you're all right, people want to be in your team and all the rest. Mm -hmm. So it, we things like that help survival techniques. But the biggest problem about jail and anybody that's been in jail who's got a family I think will agree with me is jail time doesn't break you but it can break your family how did that affect Gail? because Gail um, and the Wayne I mean the Wayne knows I've been in, I've had to tell the Wayne I've been in jail but I tell her I tell her the truth about the poll tax jail right so anybody ever says to her you know your dad's been in jail well of course yes uh, but she doesn't know all of the details um, so from from my point of view, um, you've got a situation where she had to deal with things that she shouldn't have had to deal with, um, and I felt bad about that. I felt powerless. Um, while I was there, I've got to say all the shit about the news of the world come out. All the stuff I'd been saying. I, people used to say I was off my head. People used to say, oh, Tom, you, you, you should go and get the White Coat Brigade because I was accusing them of phone hacking. I was accusing them of uh, bugging my, my car, bugging my phone. I was accusing them of intercepting emails. And everybody's like, ah, oh, rubbish. Paranoid. Paranoid. 
the guy called Andy Coulson gave uh, evidence at my trial and he came out with a phrase when I said, isn't it a case that phone hacking and illegal interception of data is an everyday occurrence in the news of the world? He said, no, Mr. Sheridan, only in your parallel universe, right? So that's, now the time he gave evidence in my case, he used to be the editor of the UK News of the World, but at the time he gave evidence in my case, he was David Cameron's right-hand man. He was his media organiser. So he's a very powerful guy. So when he says that in front of a jury, you know, some people in that jury might think, oh, you must know what he's talking about. He end, he ended up getting to jail for phone hacking. <laughs> this is a guy Aye. telling me Aye. in my court uh -huh. that there's no phone hacking. <laughs> he get to jail for phone hacking. So that shows you the types of lies that were corruption. told during that case and the corruption during that case. I continue to fight it. I'm confident whether it's uh, next week or next year, mm -hmm. my name will be cleared for that, James. It's a battle that I'll take on personally and I'll win it. I'm confident. And I think it's a battle you should keep fighting, man, because to go through that kind of torment and torture, did you feel as if you had to constantly explain yourself with people and justify your actions? Do you know, sometimes I, but often no, because... Did you get any support for, for anybody? Most people's attitude, I've got to say, was... Couldn't care less what you do in your private life. Almost people say to me, see if it's true, I couldn't care less. Because uh -huh. what I want to know is, are you fighting for us? Mm -hmm. Are you going to get on the barricades and are you going to fight for us? So I think most people' attitude is, I don't want anybody prying into my life. And is this so, just this court case with this lassie about that sort of whole big thing? That's, that's the like whole thing developed. That was way back in 2004 was when the story was printed. I had my first court case in 2006, which I won, and then they concocted the perjury charge and took me to court in 2010. So that's when I uh, ended up. We've seen, because uh, uh, I Googled, there's a picture of you on the back of the security court van, but you're looking at the window and you've got the biggest fucking smile I've ever seen in your life. Listen, there's no way, as far as I was concerned, I mean, it was a very, very close-run thing. Uh -huh. um, the court case... <laughs> end up having to date uh, my, myself because I knew it inside out. But the, the, the vote with the jury was 86. Right? Mm, so so it was close. It's, it couldn't be any closer. Another vote and it would have been so, an acquittal. Aye. right? Um, so when I'm leaving the, the, the court that day, I know that, um, you know, we've done everything we could. Mm. Um, a return, that picture you're talking about, was after the sentencing um, and we'd done the plea and mitigation and all that. And they gave us three years, and I, I thought to myself, you know what, there are people, you read stories every other day, you know, really violent stuff, people Rape, take, take a letter, people, yeah. and they're lucky if they get two years, you know. <laughs> three years. And, you know, so when I'm leaving that court, I'm saying to myself, bugger you, I'm not going to be broken, uh -huh. you know, I've got a great family, I've got a great set of mates, they're going to stick by me, and they have done. Do you think uh, any of the jury was maybe corrupt or maybe working for the government? Um, I don't know if I could I go that Swing that I don't way. know if I go that far, uh, James, because I don't have the evidence. Uh -huh. um, the only reason that I know the vote from the jury, because most people don't know the vote, mm -hmm. but what happened after the case uh, was a, a jury member who risked imprisonment, actually, and if she'd asked my advice, I'd have probably told her not to do it, but she was so angry... Uh, uh, what happened that she actually put on Facebook the deliberations of the jury um, and the fact that there was two jury members in particular who from day one said he's guilty, he's guilty and they never changed their view all the way through the case, right? They hadn't heard any evidence uh, and she was furious about it um, and what happened, she said, was it was split 7-7 seven, seven, 
they, they went to deliberate on the 22nd of December and it was split 7-7. Uh, and then what happened on the 23rd was these two who were particularly vociferous against me said, if we don't come to a decision, we'll be kept to our Christmas. Which was pish, because yeah. they wouldn't have done that, they'd just postponed. But apparently the jury member who was uh, swithering get um, she felt bullied swayed. by that and swayed to change her vote and on the 23rd of December they returned of 8-6 uh, against me so from my point of view I've got so much evidence now to show how unsafe that conviction you was you get back to court to appeal that we, we've got a judicial review the new in the court process um, where we're trying to overturn the decision of the Criminal Cases Review Commission not to send it back to court we're Absolutely confident we're going to win that, James. So, and I, you know, maybe you, maybe you can invite me back home when I come Definitely, fingers crossed. So, see, when you were going through that, Tommy, see all the voices you've created and the, the, the controversy we try to create good for the people. Have you ever had any, any like, people try to, like, take out your life or any threats, death threats? For, like, no, no mysterious people, but obviously the higher people to to try and shut you up instead of the, because the, it's certainly the prison cases and that having to work because you're still fighting. Yeah, you're constantly fighting. But have you ever had any like, people threaten you? For, fortunately, in prison, I've never had any um, problems. I've always had uh, people who have been very friendly, mm -hmm. and um, as I said earlier, you get I think wise with your upbringing. Um, and I'm no. I'm not a gallus bastard, you know. I don't, mm. I don't try and wind people up for mm. the sake of it. I, I don't think I'm better than anybody, so I'm not going out my way to cause uh, hassle. I'm no a smart uh, prick that's going to uh, try and wind somebody up and wind up the wrong person. Yeah. Somebody tries to bully you, you or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. then you know whether you take a doing or no, you're going to fucking fight, and yeah, you, you know yeah. you, mm -hmm. you're going to get stuck in, and yeah. and, and that's what happened. So um, fortunately, it's never had to happen. Good, but. but um, in terms of threats and things, yes, there has been, I mean, through a, a particular speed, when I was in prison, and this is what upset me, and my wife got an awful lot of really, really nasty letters uh, with human excrement on it, uh, calling her a, a Fenian cow. And, what? Uh, she, she was, you're, we know you're alone in the house, beware, and all that. Now, she, she eventually had to take it to the Polish and all the rest of it. They have looked at they, they, they know that it's serious because it was happening regularly um, and it hurt, it hurt her because she, she was frightened because she was in the house herself. Um, a lot of the abuse I get online and all that tends to be to do with my, the fact that I believe in a, uh, an independent republic for Scotland. I don't think the monarchy should have a say in our lives. I, I, anybody that has a say over my life I want them to be accountable, and if they're accountable, it means I can get rid of them. Um, and if I can't get rid of the monarchy, I don't want them to see over my life. So I think we should have a democratic republic. Um, I'm also a big Celtic man. Um, I've got lots of mates that are uh, Rangers supporters. But because of my support, um, I think, for republicanism, for, for um, the idea of Scotland being a republic, then I get a lot of uh, loyalist abuse. Mm -hmm. um, people who are, you know, keyboard warriors. Yeah, James, shite bags, know, the biggest uh, shite bags They can there. send all sorts of threats from yeah. behind a wee keyboard, you mm -hmm. know. Um, send letters. Sometimes, um, you know, the time's gone by, my uh, windy's been hot. Because I, I stay in a main road. You're so, joking. Uh, hi, no, they, 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 are, are you getting support for this? Has, ever, has this ever been in, in 
the public has this ever been like in newspapers or whatever but you go through well, or is it just story one, one, one of the stories was in the newspaper because one time it got hot it was with a, a high powered uh, pellet gun um, mm-hmm. so it wasn't just a, a can or a bottle it was a it was actually a, mm-hmm. a Polis described it as a high because they found the pellet it cracked the windy somebody fired at the windy you know um so it'd been investigated. We've ended up having to get cameras put into the because I've got a wee, you know, yeah, I've got, got fears because you wee, have got your message, you've got your kid. I've got a wee twelve-year-old, and I need to think about her. And uh, so anybody comes anywhere near my gate now, or where uh, the door, then it's on camera. Uh-huh. So it, that's a big deterrent. Are you still um, getting that, Tommy? Not well. It's funny enough. No, no, since we get the cameras in, James. You but know, do you so. not think you have been quiet and all? You've not been as out there as you've usually been. Do you think all that stuff's kind of made I, you hang back? Well, I think, steps. I think what happened during nineteen, uh, sorry, two, during two thousand and twelve, um, I got out of the, the night in two thousand eleven. Big campaign two thousand twelve was against the bedroom tax, and and I was involved. I spoke at ninety three meetings all over Scotland against the bedroom tax campaign. Got people involved, and we we managed to get the Scottish government to take the decision to pay for the bedroom tax in Scotland. So nobody in Scotland had to pay it. Brilliant! That was a victory. Two thousand and thirteen comes along. And you've got a year-long campaign right up to 2014 for the for independence referendum. I I set up a campaign called Hope Over Fear, and we went everywhere, 121 meetings, every corner of Scotland, Highlands, the Lowlands, loads in Glasgow, um, and we, we we spoke to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, now we didn't win, but. The opinion polls in October of 2013, which was 11 months before the referendum, showed that we had 25% support for independence. 25%. 11 months later, 45%. That's a victory. That's that's a massive victory. We've never dropped below 45% since then. If we have the next referendum, we will go from 45 to at least 55. I think we could get to 60 but at least 55. We're going to win the next one. There's no doubt about that. But the point I'm making is, see that 2013 to 2014? Mm. I hardly seen my missus in my way Aye. because I was out every night, sometimes Working. two meetings a night. Uh, it was all voluntary. There was no money involved. But I was also doing a degree at the time at Strathclyde Uni. I was doing my law degree. I went back to uni and I did a law degree. Is that to educate yourself for the system? I just, and- I, I, do you know what, James? Uh, I'd, I'd done a few law cases myself and people kept saying that I shouldn't be doing it because I'm not a lawyer and all that and I thought, oh, bugger this, I'm going to go back and do my law Who's degree. somebody to tell you so, what you can do? Exactly. So I went and done the law degree and then I'd done the law diploma and I've, I've got all of that. Knew I could become a lawyer but I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to be a lawyer uh, because it's... Mere corruption. Um, but all of that happened between 2012 right up to 2015 uh, I was involved in big demonstrations, hope over fear. I then stood in the election, 2016, Scottish Parliament election. I stood for election for the city of Glasgow, um, and I tried my hardest to get elected, but most people who supported independence and were socialists, most people gave their votes to the SNP. And I can understand that because they're the big party. But what they didn't understand was the voting system was rigged. You get two votes in a Scottish Parliament election rather than one with a Westminster election. And when you give both your votes to the same party, then you end up wasting your second vote because your party wins the first time round, they don't get the second vote. So one time we'll have a proper chat about it. 
It's called the list system. Um, it's quite complicated and deliberately so. So what happened is loads of people gave their second votes in Glasgow to the SNP rather than to people like myself and the SNP never got a single seat with a second vote. They won the first past the post votes but they never get any of the list members. We now have in Glasgow a city that voted for independence. We've now got two Tories representing Glasgow in the list. Two Tories. It's, it's mad. Mad. Two Tories. And it's because people wasted their second vote because they didn't understand the voting system. I uh, didn't win. I got, my party got the highest vote of all of the left parties in Scotland. So we get the biggest socialist vote, right? That was good, but it didn't amount to anything. Right. We didn't get elected. And it was a bit of a punch in the, in, in the, the solar plexus. Um, <laughs> you know, it winded you. Uh, my wife was particularly angry uh, because Gail's point of view is, you know, Tommy, you're out every night of the week, you're fighting for everybody, you're on the phone, you're on the, the computer, you're going to all these meetings, and yet when you're looking for support, you're not getting, no getting any. So she was really gutted by it. So she wanted me to take a step back, mm -hmm. uh, James. Family comes first. Family comes first, mate. Fuck everything else. Gail. Um, she is stuck the, by you through fucking furniture. She's the best wife you could ever dream for. Mm -hmm. um, a beautiful looking girl, very clever, uh, very smart, um, a, a lovely mother as well. Um, so she stopped by me through thick and thin. The least I can do is stay the same, uh, and 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 I, I will always will do that. So from my point of view, um, she's asked me to take a wee bit yeah. of a step back. Uh, certainly, 2016, 2017, I've done that. Um, we're into 2018. Do you think you're ready now? I'm doing. Uh, last night I was speaking at a pack meeting in, in Falkirk. Uh, I've got an event on Saturday. I'm speaking. I'm speaking the next week in Moss End. So I'm doing a lot of meetings, mm. James. Um, and I'm I'm hoping that the next referendum is going to be called soon. And as soon as it's called, if people want me to go and speak, I'll do it. Uh, Gail said to us, yes, she and, uh, and my Wayne will come with us and we'll make sure that we're together. Who do you think is representing Scotland well now? What MPs? What about, is it Maria Black? My, Maria? Uh, Mary Black. Black, uh, Mary Black. Ma Mary, I've listened Mar to her, I quite yeah. like her. Mary speaks for, for the heart. Um, she's, she's young, She's by her own admission, she's still got loads to learn. She's got loads of passion. passion. You can see passion. it, and she believes what she's saying. I hope she never ever changes that. But because... she'll get, she's ruffling a couple of feathers where they try and change her. I don't think so. I, 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 I don't think there's any doubt that she's, she's ruffling fingers, James. But will she change? I hope no. I hope no. Uh, I think. I mean, the SNP government, um, in my opinion, people say, "Oh, they should be doing this. They should be doing that. They should be doing the other." Yeah, sure, there are gaps. Of course, there. Are. But you know what? We don't have tuition fees. So youngsters can go to university and they don't have to pay. We don't have prescriptions so that if you're sick, you don't get charged for it. We don't have bridge tolls. We we, we have a, a bedroom tax that's been taken away from people. We, we have a situation where uh, the SNP protect the health service instead of selling it off. That is all better than what's happening in England. So people might ha point out their weaknesses, that the SNP's got. And there are weaknesses, of course there are. But there are also strengths in that. I'm not an SNP member, I'm a solidarity member, that's my party, it's a socialist party. But I'm not going to stand here and say, oh, uh, because it's not my party, they're not doing a good job. They're doing a reasonable so solidarity, job. that's your famous saying, isn't it? What is that, say. unite? What, what, so, sol solidarity is, the name of my party is Solidarity, and the reason we called it Solidarity 
is because that's our way of life. Yeah. You know, you you're in trouble. You need a solidarity. You you're involved. Is that like in a, a brother, like need, exactly. Yeah. Brothers and sisters. Have you ever wrote a book? I've wrote a couple. Uh, I've wrote a couple of books um, that have been more political. I, I, I wrote the book A Time to Rage. Uh, with, with a woman called Joan uh, I wrote another book called Imagine with a, a, a guy called Alan um, and, just a uh, book about your life what people are on at me the new today is to write a book because listening to your story I don't think people realise the extent of what you fucking go through well, it has been a roller coaster for so, you to be honest James I, I've got loads of stories I mean we've, we've discussed we've sat here and we've discussed things and you know, we've, we've missed out loads of stuff. We've mm. not even talked about Big Brother, so about celebrity. Taking uh, part uh, celebrity let's talk about Brother. that. How was Ta- that? Taking part in Celebrity Big Brother was a big What thing. year was uh, that? That was 2009. How that was, was that experience? January. You were in with, in fact, Mini-Me. I was in with Did you know him? He just yeah, passed away. Yeah, it's very, very sad. Very, very sad. I put a wee post up just saying he was a he was a talented wee guy. Loads of demons. Loads of demons. Oh, did uh, we, we, We've, um, you know, he suffered from an illness, obviously. Um, and he told me, I remember he confessed to me in 2009 that the life expectancy that he had was 40 and he was just coming up for 40 at the time. So even at that time, he was living in borrowed time. The uh, fact that he survived to 49, actually, mm-hmm. is, he's outlived his, his own expectations. And I've seen some of his fucking girlfriends, man, so even a couple of them for five years, man. He, 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 what he told me was that um, he felt exploited, he, he felt abused uh, what he says was that a lot of these girls would um latch on him for fame for fame they would latch on him they would get invited to the parties they would get invited to the hussies and then of course they would Meet try to latch on to somebody else yeah. and his heart had been broken several times You're that's joking. what i mean about uh, we i mean one night this is a funny side of it uh, and i hope he's seen the funny side of it but one night you get absolutely pished. Um, I mean, big, <laughs> did big, they get drunk easy? Oh, well, they did actually. <laughs> if, you look, if you look at the size of him, for God's sake, of course it's easy. But the, the, the wee man, I, I said to him, I had to say to him right at the start, me and him became pals. Um, and I kept doing things for him. I, I kept like opening doors, honing cups, honing cutlery. I wasn't doing it because it was we. I was doing it because that's what you do. You're yeah. polite. You had the door open for us. That's why I was brought up. <laughs> but I ended up after two or three days saying to Vern, I says, look, Vern, I need to get something straight with you here. In Glasgow, we call a spade a spade and we also call people wee man. <laughs> so, so when I call you wee man, it's no offensive. Empty, it's, it's not meant to be offensive. It's just simply an affectionate term. Uh-huh. You know yourself. Like you're, wee if, man. You're, if your buddy's a uh-huh. big guy, you call him big man. And if he's a wee, wee man, yeah. you know, wee man, big man. It's just the way we are. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I said that to him, and he, he burst out laughing and all that. And one day, maybe I think it was three days, four days into Big Brother, um, he got called to the diary room. And we're all <laughs> like, well, what's going on here? We didn't know where it was going. So he comes back and we say, right, what's, what's going on, what's going on? He says, Tommy, I have to ask you something. I say, oh, God, I'm, I'm worried. So what, what's up? He says, will you be my fire buddy? I'm like, oh, fire buddy? What, what, what do you mean? He said, well, they've just informed me that because of my height and the potential uh, inability to get out at, at speed, mm-hmm. they've asked me to nominate a fire buddy in case the fire alarm goes off I have to nominate somebody to make sure I get out of the building. 
would you be my fire buddy? And I was like, I nearly agreed. And I was like, oh, of course I will be, man, no problem. Um, so we ended up being pals and we were talking about loads of things. And this one night, um, Big Brother, they, they, they feast and famine. Sometimes they'll give you loads of food and loads of drink. Then they take it all away for you and they try and get everybody to fight with each other. That's what it's all about. Um, but this time they decided to give us a party because I think we'd, we'd won some of the tasks or something. So it was all bottles of pomaine and all that. And we man's decking it. He's getting absolutely pissed. Um, and he starts telling me and Coolio that he's in love with Latoya. The and Jackson. Is there any, do we think he's got any chance with Latoya? No. What do you take? What do you say? I'm like, ah, oh, look, are you sure? <laughs> is, is that the best? Is that the best play? And all the rest of it? You know, um, we end, ended up hopefully letting them down um, gently. Gently, but later that night, it's famous. If you go to YouTube, you'll see it. Later that night, the wee man jumps in a scooter, didn't he? And he gives it, he gives it loudy, run about the big brothers, and then he goes into the dining room and he just bang. <laughs> He Crashed falls off his scooter. He banged right at the dining room, falls off his scooter. It's, I think it's doing as one of the top 10 moments uh, in celebrity. Was it steaming? Well. He was absolutely uh, steaming. Um, his next days, he was splitting on that, you know. So it was, it was ideal. It was ideal. The stuff that he's did, man, he was a genius. He was a wee genius. For the films he was in, he's, but do you think he was exploited for? Do you think it kind of, he was getting used like a... Listen, I, James, I think we're all uh, partial to um, somebody inflating their egos. You know, if somebody tells you, oh, you're brilliant, you're this, mm -hmm. you're that, then they could tell you for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. They could be taking the piss uh, and they could be trying to use you. And uh, I think quite clearly Vern was used several times in his yeah. life. Um, and I, I just, I, I, I found a bit of empathy with him and mm -hmm. I, I thought he was a decent wee guy. The, the beauty for me as Celebrity Big Brother in 2009 was I had a great group of uh, guests. Um, certainly my wee group. You had good pals with Coolio. You've well, taken him to Parkie, didn't you? Coolio, like? Coolio is cool. That's, you know, he's just a cool guy. You know, mm -hmm. he's uh, Terry Christian is another guy uh, who was in ways. And we had a wee gang. Uh, me, Terry and Coolio... Every night we would have natters right through to the, the wee small hours, you know, and we would tell stories and all this. We used to take the piss out of Coolio because Coolio was obviously for Compton. Uh, by a gangster. You know, by gangs, you know, uh, gangster's paradise. But of course, Terry's from Manchester, right? Uh -huh. so and you're from Pollock? He, he's no stranger to, to rough places. I'm from Pollock. Uh, so we, <laughs> we used to wind them up. We used to say... Compton, oh, that's a middle class retirement. <laughs> that's a retirement home for me. The real areas, Glasgow and Manchester, that's where the real hard men are and all that. And I ended up actually, I actually didn't know this. One of the stories, uh, I don't think I've ever told this to, but I actually um, nearly got into a, a lot of trouble. I nearly got hauled out of the Big Brother house. I didn't know until I got out. Um, because what had happened is I'd started uh, chatting See, when you're into the wee small hours, you don't think anybody's aye, listening, aye, right? Aye. So I'm chatting away and we're talking about crime and all the rest of it. And no long before I went in, there had been a shooting up at the Waldorf in Glasgow. Aye, the pub. Um, and uh, somebody had told me, I'm no one to say who, but somebody told me it was a targeted shooting. And that, that's speak for... It wasn't uh, an error. It, mm -hmm. You know, it was obviously some form of fault um, within the, the fraternity. 
Um, and I'm talking away this night and I'm saying, Ah, oh, Compton, man, I go about with tricycles in Compton. I've been back when I come in for Glasgow, oh, you just drive by shooting in Glasgow and all that. So they were like, Oh, what, what happened? And I'm saying, Oh, a guy gets shot outside, oh, dude, terrible, it's tragic for the, for the guy's family and all the rest of it. But apparently, it's a targeted shooting. God almighty, unbeknown to me, next day, bloody the scum newspaper had done a big, big story. Sheridan, um, let's uh, loosen and Big Brother <laughs> talks about target shooting. His that the family of the guy that was shot are gone mental apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how does he know that? You know? Mm-hmm. And Aye. the the producers say that the police were want to question me, so I was uh, they wanted but to. But it bring was all the, the news. So my lawyer, uh, he had to speak to them and all the rest of it. But I nearly got hauled out because I didn't know any of this until I came out yeah. in the Big Brother and I got told all that. Uh, but that was a great, listen, it's a great experience. It was a massive pay. Uh, I mean, they, they they offered 80 grand at first uh, and then it were up to 100 grand. How did you knock it back first time? Well, what happened was um, I got offered Big Brother in 2007, James. Uh, in 2007, after the court case, um, Celebrity Big Brother asked me to take part and I said, on your bike, I, I'm not interested. I've got a job. By that time, I was still an MSP. Uh, sorry, I said 2007, 2006. Uh, it was to take part in the January 2007 show. Um, I said, no way. I'm an MSP. I've got a job. I'm, I'm no doing it. Um, oh, you, you, you get, get your ideas across. I said, look, I'm no doing it. It's as simple as that. So I knocked it back in uh, 2006 to take part in the 2007 show. They then come back in uh, 2008 late 2008 and said, look, we want you to take part in the 2009 mm-hmm. show. Uh, and I said, no, look, I'm no, um, I don't really think it's, it's my scene. And here the lassie says, well, Tommy, um, they're offering £80,000. <laughs> I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. I'm, no, I'm no crossing a picket line. I'm no letting anybody down. I'm no uh, ripping up any of my principles. Mm-hmm. £80,000. I was, I was at uni at the time and I had fees to pay and all that. So I thought, oh, bugger this then. I said, oh, well, okay. She says, well, I'm going to go back in and try and get more. Now, little did I know she was an agent. Uh, the reason she was wanting to get mayor is because she get mayor because uh, she ended up getting up to 100 grand of what she get 20%. Mm-hmm. So instead of her getting 20% of 80 grand, she get 20% of 100 grand. Mm-hmm. So that that was what the, you got offered. So when people say to me, why do you do? <laughs> why did you do Big Brother? I defy anybody. It was only three weeks. Aye. I was in for 19 <clears throat> nights, right? Uh, because the final was in the 21st night. Mm. And I, I never got into the final. Uh, but I, I was there for 19 nights. But I defy anybody offer them 100 grand to go and sit, sit in the in house for house. three weeks. Yeah, I know. And you met some great people. Were you still pals with them after that? Kept in touch with Terry. Kept in touch with Vern. Kept in touch with Coolio. How did you get Coolio to the Celtic game? Well, Coolio and I have been in touch for for years. Um, he Anytime he visits uh, Britain, he comes and tries to get to Scotland. He's been to the house a few times. We've had a bits of that. He gets me to go to his concerts and all that. But one thing he'd always wanted to do, there's a wee story about Celebrity Big Brother. I don't want to go on and on. I don't know how our timing is here. But mm-hmm. uh, this one wee story, maybe make, for you guys, because people will be getting bored, but maybe make us the, the last story. But what happened was, while we were in Big Brother, I used to go into the toilet. It was a, called a luxury toilet. It was a big sunken bath and all that stuff and seats around about it. I used to go in there and do a bit of exercises, zaps and press-ups, and I'd try and keep fit because it was 
boring, man. It was pure boring. You had to do something to keep yourself going. So this particular day, the bold Latoya comes into the, the luxury toilet and she's wanting to talk and she's telling me all about her life and some of the abuse that she's had in the past. Some All of which I didn't have a clue about. I, a lot of people know about the Jacksons. I didn't have a clue about the Jacksons. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she was wanting basically a friendly ear and I was listening to her and responding and hopefully offering her uh, some sympathy. Um, and then the bold big brother makes an announcement. For the next 10 minutes, Latoya has to repeat everything Tommy says. <laughs> now, I'm in the midst of talking about socialism and public <laughs> ownership and taking back the railways and all that stuff. It was a wee bit boring. So I thought, I'll bugger this. So I started singing Flower of Scotland. Of course, Latoya had to start singing Flower of Scotland. And then I thought, this will annoy a right few people. I'm thinking, hail, hail. Mm -hmm. So I started singing, <laughs> hail, hail. And of course, Latoya had to sing, <laughs> hail, hail. And this is Michael Jackson's sister. This is Michael Jackson's sister. This is the <laughs> Latoya. So she's giving it loud. They're singing, hail, hail. The Celts are here. And the bold uh, Coolio puts his seed in the door. Hey, man, what's that song? What's that song? I want that for the LA Lakers. I want that for the LA. So that then became a source of conversation. Yeah. Where did this That's song amazing. come from? What was it all about? And I obviously told him about Glasgow Celtic and uh, the songs they sang in Paradise. And he's, oh, I want to go to that. I want to go to that. So that was a way back then. Mm -hmm. Every time he's had a visit, it wasn't possible, there wasn't any games on, blah, blah, blah. But this time, mm -hmm. he was coming on the same day, it's almost a, 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 a September mm -hmm. last year, and it was playing Hibs That's at, amazing. Uh, at Parkhead. And I said, look, mate, I'm going to take you party. Oh, great. So what a rush that was, James. Got any tickets? Uh -huh. I had to pull in favour after favour. <laughs> I'm off oh, crazy. I'm trying to take me. Uh, Parkhead, can I get tickets? So I had uh, friends, big Thomas Melville, uh, big Tam, uh, runs the Buddha. Uh, Hi, Bar Buddha. Bar Buddha. Uh, big Tam, uh, he fixed this. He said, Tommy, I've got uh, two tickets for the um, Magnus, Magnus Lounge, he mm -hmm. says. It's brilliant, he says. It's a whole day thing, pre-drinks, pre-meal, uh, after drinks, the whole sh the whole shebang got you two tickets. I says, hey, that's fine, but the problem is you need to wear a tie, and Coolio does you have a tie. Yeah. <laughs> I says, I'll tell you what I'll do, Tam. I'll give those two to mm -hmm. Gail and Gabriel, I says, and I'll go into Celtic TV, and I'll offer Coolio to do the half-time draw. So I'll go into Celtic TV, Jerry McCulloch and all that, and here, sure enough, they're like, they didn't have anybody to do a half-time draw. I says, well, do you want Coolio? Oh, that'd be great. You know, gangster's paradise <laughs> in paradise. <laughs> so, we, they, because he was doing the draw, they fixed mm -hmm. them two tickets. So I was able to take him, mm -hmm. uh, and it was a fantastic amazing. day. It, he was just blown away by it. And fair play to him, just in case, because some Celtic fans might remember, we drew two each that day. It wasn't a very good result. Um, but, I have to make this point. Coolio left at half time because he had to go and do a sound check because he had a concert that night uh, at, the, at the Hydro. Um, and Coolio left at one nut. We were one nut up at that time. Aye. So it wasn't his fault that we drew to each. It was one nut when he left. Uh, but it was a great experience. That's amazing. And, and he's, he's a good guy. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed your 
the podcast, mate. I think you're a great man, mate. I think what you believe in is inspirational and it shows that no matter what area you're for, you can create change just with a bit of balls, a bit of drive and, and seeing a vision. For you coming on today and telling your story, I've never really heard of that. I've just read about you in the papers and people judge, but coming for what you're saying, you're actually an honest man and straight to the point. There's no bullshit. And I'm very grateful you came on today. And for anybody Pleasure, uh, for watching, mate, about your 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 walk next week, your rally. How can you tell them again how to yep. get involved? Let's get yourself to the Kelvin Grove Park. I'm sitting up here because I've realised I started dead straight, uh-huh. and then you've just relaxed. Just relaxing <laughs> down there. I've I've got a feet up. I'm watching the film. You know, I've got the Godfather on. Um, anyway, um, next. Uh, a week on Saturday, 5th of May, Kelvin Grove Park, 11 in the morning. I know it's an early start for some people travelling for different parts of Scotland, but for the Glaswegians, please get yourself there. Mm-hmm. March from there. If you can't march, just go straight to Glasgow Green. There's going to be a rally in Glasgow Green. If you can march, come with us. I've checked the weather. It's not going to be sunny, but it's not going to be raining. It's just going to be cloudy. So it's a good day for a march. Get yourself there and let's show the rest of the world loud and clear that we are prepared to stand up and be counted to take our destiny in our own hands and build a new and a better Scotland. Excellent, mate. Amazing. Listen, thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Excellent. And we're off. Podcast Network.